Well, this morning, I want to ask the question, what's your ministry? Perhaps you hold a church position. Maybe you work with children. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you give Bible studies. Maybe music is your thing. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. And some people are just so natural at being hospitable, and other people, they just don't see it. But maybe that's your gift. Maybe you have the gift of helps, the gift of support, if you will, which is always very largely a gift that we need more of. Often we don't need more leaders, we need more helpers, right? Maybe you have the gift of attendance. That's also vital. Nothing more frustrating than spending hours and hours and hours on something and nobody shows up, right? Maybe you are an encourager. Maybe you're one that takes food to people in times of crisis. Maybe you are a prayer warrior and you devour that list each and every week or daily and you're on that texting group that gets notifications throughout the day. Whatever it is, any of you that have been involved in ministry for a good period of time know that ministry, while on the outside we try and make it look flowery and nice and people come up and they give testimonies and sometimes we get tearful and we say, praise the Lord, this is incredible. But the day in, the day out, the grind of ministry can be very tough. It's not easy. I still remember in my first district saying we need to have an evangelistic series and campaign and we tried to rally the church and we found this hall that we were going to rent and we secured our budget and the funds and how many nights and so on and so forth and did all the advertising and we had three people show up. And I knew that you typically maintain about 10% of those that show up on opening night. So 10% of three is what? Who said zero? That's exactly what we had for night number two and three and four and onward. Do we continue this thing? Do we just stop part way? We continued it all the way through. We preached the truth. We needed to hear it. But ministry can be challenging at times. I remember on another occasion having two people in my office in a shouting match with one another. And as it escalated, and as they stood up and were shouting, I was in between. And I stood up and I was going to say, we're not going to do this like this to which they simply pushed me back down into my chair, continued to shout over top of one another. And what was the topic of discussion? Who should be the next elder of the church? My goodness. Another place I was, very first Sabbath I arrived, the head elder, the patriarch of the church, if you will, started to interrogate me over potluck over why I felt called to ministry. And so I was trying to answer his questions, but I could tell he certainly had an angle. And everything I said about why I was called to no, that's not it. No, that's not it. No, that's wrong. And I'm thinking, wait a second here. And he continued on this path until finally he just concluded, you're not called to ministry, and he left. I thought, this is a good start to ministry. By the time it was all done, by the time we parted ways, uh, we were good friends, and there was tears in our parting. But there was a little frustration at the front end, let me tell you. I remember at one place being appalled because during the children's story, uh, the woman was talking about fairy tales and unicorns and princesses and magic. And then it finally concluded with happy ever after. And I thought, oh, Lord, have mercy. This is ministry. There was another time my wife and I were out visiting. Lauren was just a baby, maybe about a year old. And we went in one of these back haulers. This was before GPSs and smartphones, and we were pretty sure we were in the right place, but it just it felt very eerie in this little hauler where we were, and, and we found, yes, this is the place. And so we walked up to the door, and uh, she came to the door. There's some details about that first introduction that I won't describe, but we get inside, 
And we're sitting there having a, a conversation with this lady. And Lauren is just about the age where she can stand up at a coffee table and support herself. And so she finds something that she's banging on the coffee table. And we're trying to engage with her and not be too distracted by our own child and various things until the woman says, oh, excuse me. And she gets up and she removes what Lauren is banging on the coffee table, which happened to be a loaded handgun. How we miss that little detail, I don't know either. But I shudder at the thought. Welcome to ministry. And then there was a time I was attempting to connect with a fringe member. Uh, they were kind of disenfranchised with the church. It was a husband of a gal who was pretty irregular. So I decided to try and connect with this guy, and he was a big outdoorsman. I think I can call him a redneck because I consider myself one of those as well. I haven't washed my truck in years except for when it rains. Anyway, so we are, he decides, let's go on this four-wheeler ride. I'm thinking this is probably not the best judgment because I'm going to be on the back with him. Do you have any helmets? Oh, we don't need helmets. No, I really would be feel, feel more comfortable with helmets. I get the helmet on, and we're charging up this hill, super steep, and we hit a log, and with his weight, he's a big guy, and then my weight hanging on for dear life, the whole four-wheeler just continues to come back when we hit this log. And so we roll over completely backwards with the four-wheeler on top, with him on top of me, and I remember my whole neck coming forward, and I remember hearing, and I thought, that's the last time I'm going to walk. I've just been paralyzed. Thankfully, I did get up. I did walk. And after a few thousand dollars of PT later, I was okay. They said I had, I don't remember if it was second or third degree whiplash or is there degrees for that? I don't know. But it was relatively severe. Welcome to ministry. And then there are the death threats. Yes, death threats. The hateful emails. The rumors and the backbiting. And since I've always looked young, in fact, my first wedding, fresh out of college, was with a couple. I just baptized him, and she was already Avenist, so he had a bunch of non-Avenist family members had never seen me before. They said, who's that preacher man up there? His mama just dropped him off. You know, that's, that's kind of been the norm. So since I always look young, a lot of times when there is bad behavior, bad attitudes, whatever it is, they just justify themselves by saying, well, you're just young and inexperienced. There's probably some truth to that. I don't mind being young. There are times I'm sure I'm inexperienced. And in some parts of life, that's a good thing. Just the other week, I had somebody tell me that exact same thing uh, while he also decorated his language with some very choice words. Welcome to ministry. You never know what you're going to get. Pastor, can I meet with you this week? Can I ask what it's regarding? Sometimes they don't even want to tell you. I'd rather wait. And so you're left unknowing what they're going to present to you, and it could be anything, and it seems like it's just about been everything. Welcome to ministry. And this isn't just pastoral ministry. All ministry is tough. You know. It can be exhausting. There could be periods of discouragement or frustration, certainly criticism. I didn't list that as the gifts, but some in the church feel like that's their spiritual gift, is to simply criticize everyone else. But they call themselves the watchmen on the wall. And I believe that's a biblical idea. We need watchmen on the wall, but we can take that too far too, and it just turns into criticism. Whatever you do, it's wrong. And I've been in toxic churches where no one wants to do anything because of the row of criticizers that simply criticize anything anybody tries or attempts to do. And it becomes toxic. Welcome to ministry. And then there's those times that you're wondering, is any of this even making any difference? That's what the devil likes to whisper in your ear. Is it making any difference at all? One of the churches I pastored, I consistently preached to about 20 people. That's a little bit awkward. You almost feel like you need to just gather around a table for a Bible study, right? 
And all of them were retired except for one vibrant young couple in their late 50s, and he still mountain biked. And after four years and two evangelistic series, our numbers remain the same. You've been in churches like that, and you find yourself praying, Lord, what can we do? How can we improve this situation? How can we reach this community? How can we change the climate of this group of people? Welcome to ministry. It's really not for the faint of heart. And I know I've been sharing from my experience. I know all of you, we could go around the room and you could share from yours. Maybe at lunch today, you'll share some of your ministry stories. I know one of the challenges of ministry is that there's very often, or maybe we could say not very often, tangible results. You go to work. I remember, you know, in college and even in high school doing some construction. My favorite was rough framing, Bryce, because you show up and you just have the solid flooring. And by the end of the day, the whole first floor, the walls are up. The next day you're doing the interior walls. Then you're putting on subfloor of the next level. I mean, by the end of the week, there wasn't a house here and now there's a house. That feels good. Same with cutting the grass. You cut the grass. It looks shabby before when you're done. That looks nice. I did that. But with ministry, you find yourself exhausted, wondering what on earth you even did and what difference did it make? Now, I know and you know that ministry is not about me. It's not about us, right? I know that we leave the results to God. I know the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts the heart. But I also know the devil tries to discourage and destroy ministry. The great controversy is real. And if you've been involved in ministry, you know exactly what I mean. The devil is very good at bringing strife within a team of volunteers. He seeks to sap resources, be it time or money, to cause a host of challenges to crop up. And then he plants the seed of doubt, doesn't he? What are you wasting your time for? Are they really worth it? Are you even making a difference? And does anybody really care? I mean, would they do the same for you? Perhaps that's why burnout among ministry leaders can be so high. 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. 90% of pastors work between 55 to 75 hours per week. 75 hours. That's 10 and a half hours a day, seven days a week. 90% feel fatigue and worn out every week. In fact, we had a pastor in our area who was in the hospital with serious heart issues just recently, and I spoke to them, and it was stress-related. You know, 80% believe that pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. 33% said it was an outright hazard. 80% of ministry spouses feel left out and unappreciated in their church. 77% feel they do not have a good marriage. 70% do have some do not have someone they consider a close friend. 44% of pastors do not take a regular day off. I mean, the list just goes on and on. All of these being the contributing factors to why, on average, seminary-trained pastors, think of the time, the energy, the resources put into seminary-trained pastors, not within the Adventist system alone, but across the board. Only five years in church ministry is how long that most of them will last. 80% will not be in ministry 10 years later. And I can apply that to my own class. And I can look through. In fact, I had three people in my theology classes, and they graduated at the same time. Out of those three, only one is still in ministry for various reasons. I can go down through the list of others, and I have a harder time finding yet another. And so we're continuing our series now. And as we look at Paul, we see that he faced enormous challenges. And the question I want to pose is, how did he face those challenges? How did he handle them? What advice would he give to all of us here in ministry of some capacity? What words of encouragement would he have for us? What enabled him to go the distance? Well, I think at the core, 
Paul had three things underlined. A clear sense of his personal identity, who I am in Jesus Christ. That is so vital and it's so important. Who are you? Are you a child of the king? Personal identity. Secondly, I believe Paul had a strong sense of mission. And thirdly, he had a deep sense of purpose. We're going to unpack those a little bit more. This individual, the Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, he said, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last pieces of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offered sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of his freedoms is to choose his own what? Attitude in any given set of circumstances. I may be here in this concentration camp, but that doesn't change my identity. That doesn't change my mission and it doesn't change my purpose. I have control by God's grace of my attitude and how I'm going to handle different situations. And so I'm going to minister where God has placed me in this concentration camp. It's incredible. Every day we choose the attitude that will ultimately guide our thoughts and our actions. And I'm convinced that the best attitudes emerge out of a clear understanding of our identity in Christ, a clear sense of divine mission and a deep sense of God's purpose in our lives. Continuing on our series in Paul, today we're going to look at some highlights of Paul's first missionary journey. And we're going to skip around a fair bit, but we're going to stay in Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14. We're not going to study everything, and you can go this afternoon and you can read those chapters in its entirety. That would be probably a great thing to do. But this morning I want to see what can we learn from Paul as he enters into, really, full-time ministry. How did he approach various challenges and times of persecution? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And we'll begin in verse 1 of Acts chapter 13, where we left off last time. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, Acts chapter 13, beginning verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, or Manaen, excuse me, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Spirit of prophecy refers to this as when they were ordained by the church to the gospel ministry. It's right there in Acts of the Apostles. They've been ministering for a considerable amount of time. They've been serving together in Antioch for over a year. God has been working in profound ways, but now the church is formally recognizing them and giving them full ecclesiastical authority to preach the truth, to baptize, to organize churches. And so we continue on verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And so if we have this map here on the screen, they're starting out here in Antioch with the blue line, and you see Salamis, and then Paphos, and then they go over to Perga and onward, and then they turn around at Derby and come back. We may not hit every point on the map today, but notice what they did. The first thing at Salamis in verse 5, it says, and when they arrived, they preached the word of God. Notice it doesn't say they preach their own opinions. It doesn't say they preach the latest fads or the latest authors, the latest bestsellers. They preached the word. They didn't preach some mixture of the desert fathers with some new age theology that brought in crowds and got people excited. No, they preached the word. 
This is the first of 15 times in chapters 13 and 14, which are his first missionary journey, 15 times that there is reference to either God's word or the word of truth or the teaching of the Lord or the law and the prophets or the good news, basically talking about delivering the word 15 times. And so we're looking for distinguishing marks of an authentic ministry. First and foremost, it needs to be, it must be saturated with the word of God. And I believe Paul was grounded in the word of God. That was his anchor. That was at the core. It was in God's word that he found his identity, his purpose, his mission. And through the word, God prepared him, I believe, for every challenge. What challenge are you going to face today? You don't know, but God does. And he wants to give you something in his word to strengthen you for the challenge. You know, pastor, I just read today and then this thing happened. Is that just coincidence? Did the Holy Spirit set that up? So my first question, a basic question, could it be in the busyness of life, the busyness of summer, the changes of schedule, a new job, whatever it might be, could it be that you've grown soft in the study of God's word? I've heard it. I know the truths. I've been through so many sets of Bible studies. I get that. But what does God have for you for the challenge for today? Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe it's been a few weeks. Maybe it's been a few months. Whatever it is, has your time in the scripture waned? Because if it has, everything else in your life will be impacted. Your own sense of identity will be lost. There will be a loss of a sense of mission. You'll begin questioning your own purpose, your relationship with God, your ministry, your closest relationships will all begin to drift and sin will not seem so sinful. Selfishness so easily takes over and you'll start to rationalize every thought and every action and every deed. So this isn't just a characteristic of authentic ministry. This is truly the foundation of all life. The study of the scriptures must be our foundation because it is there that we hear the voice of God speaking to us. I mean, it's nice to have a devotional book or whatever, but it's kind of already pre-chewed, if you will. Somebody's already worked it over a little bit, and that has its place, and that's okay. But to saturate your mind directly with God's Word, something very powerful about that. Spending a thoughtful hour? I can't do that. We'll start with a thoughtful 20 minutes. If you do that consistently, you're going to crave more. So fine by me. Just be consistent. But I know for me, when I spend a thoughtful hour, things change perspectives change, attitudes change, responses change. When I don't, they still change. It's just not for the better. Maybe you're similar. I love the signs of the times quotation. I shared it at prayer meeting a few weeks ago, written April 4, 1906. There she writes, the Bible is God's voice speaking to us. Think about that. Let that sink in a little bit. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us just as surely if we could hear it with our own ears. If we realize this, If you realize this, if I realize this, with what awe we would open God's word and with what earnestness we would search its precepts, the reading and contemplation of the scriptures would be regarded as an audience with the infinite one. I mean, this is amazing. This is incredible. I'm always amazed at how back in Abraham Lincoln's time or whatever, if you wanted to meet with the president, you just walk in. And there might be somebody there saying, you know, he's busy right now or he can't see you. But for the most part, if you were really, you know, I got to see this guy, you just walk right in to the White House to talk to whoever you need to talk to. I need to talk to the president. Try that today. How would you go about it? Who would you talk to? Who would you have to know to get an audience? And even if you're a mover and a shaker, you have to negotiate for five minutes. I need just five minutes with the president's ear. I can't get you that today. I can't even get you that next week. But if you get it, you better believe you're going to be there. 
But here we have audience with the infinite one of the universe. And it's God's voice speaking to us through his word. And if we realize that, how much more would we long and look forward to hearing the voice of God? So distinguishing marks of authentic ministry, well, one, saturated with the word of God. Two, an emphasis on the everlasting gospel. Skip with me if you will. I told you we're kind of skipping around in these two chapters a little bit. This is in a sermon that Paul gives, and you can read the whole thing this afternoon. But we're still in chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. And he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you, talking about Jesus, the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, granted, the law points out our sin, but it cannot save me from my sins. And so Paul is introducing to them the grace of Jesus Christ that justifies us through his shed blood. And when we should be condemned, when we should be dead in our own trespasses, the grace of God saves us from where we are. And so Paul is preaching grace. We see it again in verses 43 and 44. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue the grace of God. Tell us more about this grace. We're hungry about this grace. Continue more. And so verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. There it is again. Not to hear his opinions, but to hear from the word. Tell us about the grace. He's gone down through the history. He's shown why Jesus is not just another man, why grace can now say them and they say, we've never heard anything like this before. Come back next Sabbath and tell us more about it. And almost the whole town shows up. Why? Because people are hungry for the word. They're hungry for God's grace in this graceless world in which we live. Chapter 14, verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, who is bearing witness to the word of his grace. There it is, the word, and there it is again, the grace of God, the salvation message, if you will. And why does it say Paul was speaking boldly? Because it was not a popular message among the Jews, which we're going to see. And just as the lost don't often understand the gospel, the saved rarely understand grace. And it's not just cheap grace that I can do whatever I want and still be saved. Rather, it's God's grace to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It is God's grace for pardon, but it's also his grace for power to overcome. And it's God's grace all the way through. Oh, well, you think we need to overcome? Well, that's legal. No, it's not. It's still God's grace that allows me to overcome. Why do I want to serve a God that leaves me in my junk? We don't try to overcome to be saved. By God's grace, we overcome because we are saved. In case we've forgotten, let's turn. Leave your finger there. We'll come back to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. These are great verses packed. We're going to just do a speed read through, but powerful. This is the same author. This is the message of grace that Paul preached. This is just a different audience. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the spirit of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. We won't break this down too much, but he's talking about Jews and Gentiles alike. But God, who is rich and mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
grace you have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And in the verse we all know, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But don't leave out verse 10, for we are his workmanship, his artwork, if you will, created. He's the creator God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's the big deal about wanting to be like Christ? Isn't he our example? So the good works aren't the root, they're the fruit. And this message that Paul was preaching, that Barnabas was preaching, turned the whole city of Antioch, which is not the same Antioch here in this passage. It's Antioch Pisidia, which is further away. But it turned this whole place upside down. Almost the whole town comes out. Not to hear some clever anecdotes or to be entertained. I'm sure they were all about entertainment. And who goes to church for entertainment anyway? No, they've come to hear the word of God. To hear about a grace of God that has so gripped them and convinced them them and has changed them. We can't compete with the entertainment industry, but folks, the entertainment industry cannot compete with what we have. And friends, today the world's no different. Oh, the world's different today. Yeah, it's a bad place. It was in there at that time too. There's nothing new under the sun. Oh, we have stuff on our phones today. Well, they had stuff live back then all over the place. But the grace of God brought through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of his word, changes people. And that's what Paul was about. People are in need, I believe, today of that same everlasting gospel. That the wages of sin is death, that I'm guilty and deserve to die, but that God in his mercy has provided for me a way of escape, that through Christ I can receive pardon from my sins as well as power to overcome, and they're both by grace. That's the everlasting gospel that the world needs to hear. It's right there in the three angels' messages, Revelation 14. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is not exclusive. This is inclusive. This is for everyone. And it's the eternal gospel. It doesn't change. And it says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Friends, fear God, respect him, put him first in your life. Allow his blood to cover and to forgive you. Give glory to him. Friends, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Your body is the temple of God. What you do, what you don't do, how I live, how I don't live, all has to do with this message. For the hour of his judgment has come. These are solemn times. Things are happening. Jesus is interceding for us now in the most holy place of the sanctuary with his own blood. Jesus is soon to come. <sighs> says the church. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Worship him who is the creator of the seventh day Sabbath, the memorial of creation that gives him the reason and the right to ask us to worship because we are in his image, created in his image. Verse eight, and, I, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And so the second angel is a result of those rejecting the first angel's message. They've been intoxicated with false doctrine. They have placed reason above faith. They have worshiped when and how they choose. And the second angel reminds us that Babylon is fallen. And then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. We talked about this just this spring. The wrath of God is simply the seven last plagues, the judgments upon the earth where God vindicates his people. But all the assurances that the world has given 
given for safety and for security is not in the world, it's in Christ. And so as the world starts to break down, as all these promises they cannot fulfill start to come to pass, it is shown that God's people are secure in Christ. They're safe in Christ. They're provided for in Christ. But the world and their promises come to nothing. And it says the group that rejects Christ, the verse goes on to say they have no rest day or night. It's a miserable place to be. I can't sleep. I can't function. I can't focus. This thing is just all consuming. I can't figure it out. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I'm going to solve it. No rest. And then it's contrasted with here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. They're committed to Christ. They're patiently trusting in Jesus. They're resting in his salvation. Every Sabbath they're resting. I mean, Sabbath is not a works thing. It's resting in the saving grace and provision of Jesus. And folks, this is current. This is relevant. This is the message that God has given this denomination, this last day remnant church, which at its core speaks of our identity and our mission and our purpose. And I see too many Adventist churches and institutions floundering. And why? Because I believe they've lost this divine identity. They have lost sight of their mission and they've watered down their purpose. And they've become to look like every other Protestant denomination. We just want to be like everybody else. God didn't raise us up to be like everybody else. Do we have things in common? Absolutely. Are they big things? Yes, they are. Then let's connect on those points, but let's not in the same time get rid of our distinctives. That's why God raised us up. I mean, Paul, he had a distinctive message, didn't he? Did he agree with a bunch of the stuff in the Old Testament? Absolutely he did. And so he made that case, but then he showed Jesus. We better come back here. We need to simmer down. Maybe I'll take a drink of water. So he's saturated with the word of God. Authentic ministry emphasis is on the everlasting gospel. Now, granted, there's things that we need to do to have that opportunity to give the everlasting gospel, right? We need to sow seeds and, and even prepare the soil before we sow seeds. How do we prepare the soil? And that's what a lot of this lesson is about, helping those that are in need. Those are great things to do. But we can do that all day long, and if we never sow a seed, we're never going to have a harvest. What are you doing? I'm still preparing the soil. You've tilled it 47 times. I know it's not ready yet. Got a word for that in the South. You're just scared. Sow a seed. Allow the Lord to water it and to be in charge of results. So the third thing that we see from Paul, mature reactions to challenges. When Paul needed to be firm, he stepped up. He could also be kind and gracious, but he wasn't going to get railroaded. Check out this story. We're still in Acts chapter 13. Now we're going back to verse 6. That's kind of where we left it before, somewhere in there. Acts 13, verse 6. Now, when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Bar means son of, as he's calling himself the son of Jesus. Pretty in your face, if you will. False prophet, verse 7, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. What's a proconsul? Well, it's a ruler of a Roman province under the control of the Roman Senate. So we might say he's a governor or something of similar level, if you will. So this guy even says in the verse here, he's an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear what? The word of God. There it is again. Not his opinions, not anecdotes, the word of God. And so this governor, if you will, is calling for these two to come. I want to hear what you're preaching about. And now this false prophet is coming up to resist. And it says in verse 8, but Ilimus, the sorcerer for his name is translated. So we're still talking about the same guy, Bar-Jesus, Ilimus, withstood them seeking to turn the pro-council away from the faith. So Saul says, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend anybody. We'll just move on. Is that what it says? Then Saul, who also is called Paul, there's that quick little transition, just like that, we're done. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, I imagine he looks him in the eye, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil and enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight 
ways of the Lord. And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. That's a little humbling. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done and being astonished, you'd expect it to say at this incredible miracle or whatever, he saw what was done. It got his attention, but he was astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord. Even with all this other stuff going on and this miraculous thing that's just taken place, it's the word of God that astonishes him. And he's like, this is incredible. The truth is incredible. No, Paul didn't back down from a challenge. And this was not a time to be tolerant or passive. Friends, we live in a time when tolerance is king. You can see it on the news just about every night. Yes, we want to love everybody. Jesus loves everybody. But that in no way means that we shrink away from standing up for the truth of God's word. Notice in this little few phrases that we get from Paul, I mean, extremely straightforward, but notice Paul is not about himself in these verses here at all. What is he about? He's about defending righteousness. And folks, when it comes to defending righteousness, don't back down. When you have somebody in your sights and they are hungry for the word and they're there listening, they've asked for you to come and somebody comes to try and sideswipe this interest, do not back down. But like Paul, stand up and stand out and defend God's word and call them out by looking them in the eye. This is not okay. I'm not going to stand for this. You are perverting righteousness and I'm going to call you out. And God works in a mighty way. I don't imagine you're going to memorize these verses and say the same thing to your coworker. Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. But I am asking you, what opportunities do you have to confront enemies of truth? And there's lots of them. And how is God calling you to speak out for truth? Granted, we don't want to be harsh. We don't want to be offensive, but we don't want to be timid either. And so where does it start? It starts by saturating ourselves with the word of God, spending time in his word, in time in prayer. And so when the moment comes, we can pray, Lord, is this a time? I'm not asking you to go around, point out everybody's sins and faults, but there are opportunities that you have and that I have to stand up for truth in a way that's not harsh, it's not offensive but it's not timid. And people know right where you stand. You know, I've seen a lot of this summer, people on road trips and traveling and they're at this national park or they're up in Maine or they're out West or wherever they are. Facebook is uncanny in the way that you can tell the timeline really of when the pictures were taken and this is where we were today and all this kind of stuff. So it becomes very obvious many times to me as I'm watching that people that should know better. Now, there's a whole group of people that don't know better, and they get a pass, okay? But people that I know should know better are going out to eat on Sabbath in this beautiful place. They just enjoyed going down this river or on this hike, and now they're eating ice cream, and I'm thinking, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They should know better. Well, it was just a fun outing. We've made the whole day about our own amusement, apparently. What about in the Ten Commandments? It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it how? Holy. This isn't a holiday. This is a holy day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And in case you're confused, it goes on. Thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger. So I sit down at the restaurant. A stranger comes over to me. Whether it's a male, a female, what do they call them? A server. And they are serving me. Somebody got up early to cook this, to bake that, to do whatever. I'm paying them for this service so I can have a nice, happy Sabbath. Isn't that nice? And the commandment that began with remember, his own people are forgetting. People that should know better. Now again, there's some that don't and they get a pass, but those that know better. And I like to think that we know better. You know, and I know the whole, all the excuse, well, we're traveling and it's highly inconvenient. No, a hundred years ago, when you're traveling, it's highly inconvenient. 
But they still made arrangements, didn't they? They still planned ahead. Where'd this seventh day come from? It just, bam, no, you know it's coming. Every single week, you know when it's gonna be here. And I realize it's convenient to sit down and have someone wait on you, but I also realize it's not that inconvenient to slip into a grocery store. There's thousands of them, in case you haven't noticed. Get a few things for Sabbath. If you're on the road, they even sell for your convenience, little styrofoam coolers. Or you can purchase things that don't require coolers. And you can make your nice little picnic. And you can plan and say, we're going to go over to this little quiet spot or over here, over there, and we're going to enjoy our meal. I don't understand. And I wonder if there's opportunities. I wonder if I have opportunities that I just let flit away, not to stand up because somebody's offended me, stand up for truth. And I don't have to call the person names. I don't have to call them out on Facebook, hashtag hypocrite, bing, solve the world. But maybe I can reach out to them and say, hey, I'm a little bit concerned. I'm not perfect and the Lord's still working on my heart, but I know I've seen a lot of people that just one by one, they start to let various things slip and various things go. And I'm concerned. How are you doing? Maybe don't worry so much even about the Sabbath issue. How are you doing? Because it's probably an outgrowth of a heart condition. So leave the outgrowth alone and try and see if God will allow you to deal with the heart condition. How are you doing spiritually? The Lord can deal with the Sabbath thing, or maybe the Lord's asking you to do something different. I don't know. You pray about it. Do we stand up for righteousness? Do we stand up for God's word? Or have we just gone into this tolerance, passive, mind my own business? I don't see that with Paul. Still here on mature reactions to challenges. We have also when another defected, Paul pressed on. Have you noticed that? This is in verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail for Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, this is John Mark, departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. And so they're on this trip. They're just leaving Cyrus. They have this long trip to Perga there. And right there at Perga, John Mark decides this is too difficult. This is too challenging. We don't fully know why he returns home. If he had a valid reason, we imagine it would tell us. And we know later that Paul's a little frustrated that he is defective. So for whatever reason, John says, I've had enough. He gets another ticket and travels all the way back down here to Jerusalem. We could say a lot about this, but folks in ministry, people will leave. People will depart. People will leave you feeling unsupported and as if you're all alone and by yourself. Jesus knows how that felt. John 6, 60, we're told that not just a few, it says many disciples deserted Jesus, speaking of the 70. But one of the marks of maturity is the ability to press ahead regardless of who walks off the scene. Had they turned back with John or given up, they would have missed some remarkable opportunities the Lord had prepared for them. Like the one right on the heels to this, which is where Paul responds to unexpected opportunities to preach. That's another mature reaction to a challenge. So they go to the synagogue. It says we can read it here right after John departs. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch, Pisidia, and they went into the synagogue on Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, that's God's word, the rulers of the synagogue sent them to them saying, men and brethren, talking about Paul and Barnabas, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Because they said, oh, I'm not prepared. I don't have anything. Not Paul. You offer him the microphone, he's got a few things to share. Paul was ready in season and out of season. Why? Because he was saturated with the word of God. He was thick with the Almighty. And rather than make excuses, I imagine he says a little breath prayer, Lord, help me. Help me to say what you want me to say to this audience today. And he starts to preach. He stands up. This is incredible. I've heard it said we need to be ready to preach, to pray, or die at any moment. To preach, to pray, or die. Is there a time at work that someone asks a question and lays out this golden opportunity to share your 
testimony? How do you respond? It can be as simple as, I know for me, when I face difficult challenges, I cling to God's word. And my favorite passage is, and maybe that's the verse you just read again this morning in your quiet time with God, not knowing what you would face. Another mature reaction to challenges, Paul's response to open rejection. Let's read verse 42, because his message wasn't really well received by some. It says, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that his words might be preached the next Sabbath. We read that already. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Continuing verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Your translation might say with jealousy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. He's wrong. It's not this. It's this. Don't listen to this guy. He's a heretic. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. When opposed, Paul does not back down an inch, but continues on. He doesn't say, you hurt my feelings. That wasn't very nice. You need to apologize. He doesn't cry in a corner, but he's bold because he knows his identity in Christ. He knows his mission and he knows his purpose. So he's up here in Antioch in Pisidia, right up there, kind of in the middle. He's driven out from there and he goes to Iconium. There, matters don't get much better. Rather, they get worse. We read here in chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. It says, Then Jews from Antioch, that's Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, what does it say? They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Did you get the hint this time? Paul, you ain't welcome in these parts. You couldn't take a hint. You just went one town over and started preaching. Don't mess with us. Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, Paul, he rose up and went into the city. Whoa, pretty brash. They tried to stone me. I'm going back in. Now, granted, he doesn't stay there. The next day they depart and so on. But here we see a side of Paul that he's not going to back down. Do with me what you will. I'm going to continue to work for the Lord according to what he's called me and my identity, my mission, and my purpose. He's keeping his eyes on Jesus and not to those around him. And I like how he doesn't get defensive and respond to personal slights. But friends, if your ministry is to please others, you'll consistently be looking for approval and for affirmation, the praise of people. How did I do? Did I do a good job? How was that? Is that okay? That means that when a critique comes, it'll send you into a tailspin. I failed. That was awful. I did a terrible job. Somebody was upset. But if your ministry is for God, his opinion is the one that matters at the end of the day. Whether you are praised or applauded or rejected and abused, doesn't matter. It wasn't human opinion that called you to this ministry in the first place. Another one of my favorite quotes, Desire of Ages 330, continues to challenge me. It says, in the heart of Christ, where reigned perfect harmony with God, there was perfect peace. Doesn't that sound beautiful? And then this part, he was never elated by applause, nor dejected by censure or disappointment. Amid the greatest opposition, the most cruel treatment, he was still of good courage. Why? Because the multitudes did not determine his worth, his value, his identity, his mission, or his purpose. And so he didn't get a big head when everybody clapped and said, Jesus, you're amazing. 
He didn't get discouraged when people said, Jesus, crucify him. His eyes were on his heavenly father. He was in harmony with him and he was in perfect peace. Incredible to me. And every time I'm not in perfect peace, it's a little wake up call. How come? You're worried about what they think, aren't you, Dave? Yeah. Last one, we got to go. Authentic ministry gives all glory to God. In his first missionary journey, he was gone for two years or so, traveled over 1,200 miles. And Abby, he didn't have a bicycle, I don't think. Had countless stories to share. But notice how this journey ends in chapter 14, verses 25 to 27. I've included 25 just to give you a picture of what he's still doing. Now, when they had preached the word, same thing, and where this time? In Perga. They went down to Attilia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch. This is where they started this time. It says, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And it says in verse 27, now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported, and what did they report? All that God had done with them. But let's be clear, this is what God has done. And that he, capital H, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul's goal in ministry, give glory to God. In all that Paul did, the glory went to God. Fear God and give glory to him was his motto. Paul didn't give any self-serving interviews. He didn't talk about all he had accomplished. He simply shared, let me tell you what God's done and how he has opened the door of faith the Gentiles. So ministry leaders, teachers, caretakers, businessmen and businesswomen, carpenters, students, retirees, first and foremost, are you saturated with the Word of God? Secondly, are there ways you could more fully emphasize the everlasting gospel? How could we incorporate that better in what we do? Thirdly, how are my reactions to challenges? Are they mature? Do they glorify God? We're trying to defend self. And lastly, when there's a success to be made or to be spoken of, who gets the glory? Because the reality is ministry can be hard. In fact, we know it will be. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. Welcome to ministry. But how does the verse end? Be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. We could say, be of good cheer because I have the last word. I'm in charge of this planet. You just do what I tell you to do. The God that called you to it will bring you through it. So keep your eyes on him, the author and the finisher of our faith. However difficult, keep looking unto Jesus. Matthew, thank you for reading Romans chapter 12, verse one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. When I look at the life of Paul, that's exactly what he did. My life life is hidden Christ. I'm going to go where you ask me to go. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. I don't care what the response is. I don't care what the feedback is. I don't care what the anger level is. I'm going to go about your errands. I'm going to trust you in all things. He gave himself up for the one who gave all for him. So I challenge you. I challenge me. Saturate yourself in the word of God. Find your divine identity and mission and purpose in God's word. Boldly proclaim the everlasting gospel. Respond to challenges with maturity and give God all the glory, honor, and praise. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, we want to go forth, go forth with Christ. We want you to be the wind that carries us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to be saturated in your word. We want you to give us our sense of identity and purpose and mission for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.